As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello again, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and as always, really happy that you're here spending your precious free time, commute time, exercise time, whatever time with me today. I've got a special episode planned for you. I'm getting really personal and pulling back the curtain on what my job is like in the recovery room. Before we do that, let's take a quick minute for a shout out. And this one goes out to Mariella. And she is talking about my nursing school thrive guide and says, 100% can vouch for this book. I'd get the calculations boot camp and electrolyte study guide for your first semester as well. Slam dunk. So thank you, Mariella, for getting the Nursing School Thrive Guide. I'm so glad that you found it helpful. And I will put a link in the episode notes for how you can get a copy of that book as well. It is available on Amazon. So if you simply search for Nursing School Thrive Guide, you will find it there. So today I'm pulling back the curtain on what my day is like in the recovery room. So a while back, I wrote an article for my website on this topic. So I will put a link in the episode notes so that if you're interested, you can go back and read that to see what was going through my mind at the time that I made this pretty significant change. So I'm just going to be speaking kind of off the cuff about this, and hopefully I hit all the high points of what my day is like in the recovery room. So come along to work with me. So first of all, I work eight-hour shifts now in the ICU. I worked 12-hour shifts. Most nurses in the hospital, most places work 12-hour shifts, and I have to say, eight-hour shifts are a completely different Animal. Now, I'm not sure I would want to work eight hour shifts if I had to work four or five days a week. Some people find that great because it works really well with like their schedule and their kids and all of that. But I work per diem in the recovery room. So eight hours per diem is absolutely amazing. I call it the princess shift because it is absolutely just feels so, so good. So some of the pros of an eight-hour shift are obviously that it's shorter. It doesn't require me to pack an entire day's worth of food, which I know doesn't sound like a big deal, but that's a lot of prep work to pack breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a snack to take to work every day. So if I'm going in for an eight-hour shift, I'm taking lunch and a snack, basically. I'll eat before I go, and then when I'm there, I'm, you know, I'm so busy anyway. I don't really eat a lot, but I have a meal and I have a snack, and that's all that I have to take. It's also nice because I'm not as exhausted. 12 hours, you know, of course it's doable, but it is 
hard and my body just isn't as depleted working these shorter shifts. So I really like that. So the the drawbacks would be if I did want to work full time, you know, working a 12 hour shift full time is three days a week. And that's great because then you get four days off to live your life, which I love. So that would be one of the cons for me, not for everybody. But for me, if I were going to work full time working eight hour shifts, I'd be working five days a week. So that's my shift. Okay, eight hours and I work per diem. And there's a lot of pros to working per diem. I love it because I basically have a requirement for how many days I have to tell the hospital I'm available each week. And with the position I'm in now, I only have to give them one day a week of availability. There are different levels of per diem and your facilities, you know, it could be different from mine. I was in a two day a week commitment, but I pulled back and now I'm a one day a week commitment. And if I want to work more, I just put myself down as available for more. And if they need me, then they'll put me on the schedule. So what I do is this and how we do it at my facility is There's a a period where you get your schedule requests in or your availabilities into the system. So, and it's usually, you know, it's kind of far in advance. It might be like 10 weeks in advance, but you put in your availabilities. And if I, again, if I want to work extra, I just put myself down as available. Otherwise, I usually put myself down for Fridays and say I'm available these Fridays. And then if they need me, they put me on the schedule. Now, they don't always need me. So sometimes I will only work three days a month. Other times I'll work four. Other times I'll work five if there's like, say, five Fridays in a month. So it's all about availability. So that could be a con for someone who is really reliant on, you know, hey, you got to work. You got to pay bills. You, You need to work. So that would be one of the drawbacks to being per diem. Now, for the most part, if I wanted to work enough days in the week, I would just say, I don't care what days I work, just put me down for any days that you need me. And I would probably get way more hours than I ever, ever needed. But that's my facility. Yours may be different. But then one of the other great benefits about per diem is if I want a vacation, I basically just put myself down as unavailable for that time and I have vacation. Now, the con is I don't have paid vacation. So when you're looking at, you know, going per diem versus going to a regular full-time or part-time position, you have to weigh these things out. But that's my situation, okay? I work eight-hour shifts, I work per diem, and it's usually once per week on a Friday, but it could vary. Sometimes it's a different day of the week. Now, the shifts in the recovery room, the start times vary as well. The unit opens around 6.30 in the morning because surgeries are starting. So some people get there super early and then they get off around 2 or 3 in the afternoon. I like to do other stuff first and go in in the later parts of the day. So the people coming in to work in the recovery room, your start time is staggered throughout the day. One day you might go in at 1030. Another day you might go in at 1230. You might go in at 2 p.m. It depends on the caseload and when they expect patients to be coming out of surgery from the OR. So that's kind of nice because I usually go in around 1230 or so. I like having my mornings to kind of ease into the day, have my coffee, check my email, maybe do a little stuff for the website. 
maybe run some errands, and then I go to work in the afternoon. So I really like having that variability in the schedule. And then our unit, so it opens around 6.30 in the morning. I think that I actually don't think I've ever been there when they open, um, but I think it's 6.30. And then we close at 2300. We close at 11 p.m. I'm not saying we close, close. The day regular staff leaves at 11. And if there are still patients there or still patients that are going to be coming out of surgery, then we bring in the call team. So the call team is going to be two RNs. And then there's a backup RN in case those two RNs get too too busy. So there's always going to be two nurses there, no matter what. You're never there. At my facility, I can't speak to how other places in the world work. But in my facility, it's two RNs at all times. You're never by yourself. So if I I used to work till close a lot. So if my patient didn't have a room yet or wasn't quite ready to leave, then the call team would come in and relieve me at 11 so that I would get out on time and then they're there making all their time and a half money, which they were usually pretty happy about. So that's how that works. Some recovery rooms are just open and staffed 24-7 because they're that busy. So it just really depends on how your facility is set up. We also have... Weekends where we're, you know, we're, I'm not going to say we're closed because we're not closed, but we're not staffed with regular staff. If it's a weekend or a holiday and there are surgical cases and there always are, then that's another situation where the call team comes in. Okay, so that is how that works. So let's say I'm heading into work around 1230, which is a pretty common time for me. I have packed my dinner and I've packed a snack, okay? And I've brought my water. So what I'll probably do is I'll eat breakfast at home and then I'll put a snack in the car to have as I drive into work because it's kind of too early for lunch because I, I live a little farther away from the hospital. It takes me a full hour to drive to work, park, walk in, get to the locker room, change into my scrubs and walk up to the unit. I might have like five to seven minutes to spare But, you know, I like to account for traffic and whatnot. So I'll have a snack on my way. So I get to work. I park in the parking lot and then walk in. And if you've ever been at any kind of a hospital, that can be a bit of a haul. So you always have to factor that in to what time you get to work. So for me, by the time I find a spot, park, walk in, that's at least five minutes to do that. I know one of the places where I did my clinical rotations, it was about 15 to 20 minutes. So it was, it's a big, big difference. So then I go into the locker room, get my scrubs because we wear surgical scrubs in the recovery room. So I get scrubs off the cart, change into my scrubs. I've got a locker there. It's got some basic supplies in it. That's where I keep my pens, my uh, scissors, you know, all my little supplies that I use. And then I get up to the recovery room. I will walk in. First thing I do is I look on the on the staffing board to see what bay they have put me in. So they'll typically assign each nurse two bays so that you can have up to two patients at a time. So I'll look to see which bay I'm assigned and if I'm next to any friends, which is always fun. And then I'll put my things away. And if I have time, I'll make a cup of coffee. That's kind of like my getting to work 
start the day ritual. I like having a coffee treat at work. It just it just makes the whole experience really positive and it smells really good and makes me happy. So I get there, I get settled in, I get my coffee, I find out which bay I'm in. I use my badge, I swipe into the computer or log into the computer because it will take a little bit for it to, you know, ramp up and I don't want to be doing that as a patient is wheeling in. I'll check my email, see if I have any e-learning to do all of that. If I don't have a patient coming, I'll do a lap, see if anybody else in the unit needs help with anything. And then ultimately, I'll see the charge nurse coming towards me with a little slip of white paper. And that's how they hand out the patient assignment. So they hand me a little piece of white paper, and it has the patient's label on it, the surgery procedure they're having the surgeon and the anesthesiologist. And so that's like my my basic info. And what I then do is I go into the chart at that point and I look up my patient. I get familiar with the patient that I'm getting from surgery. And I try to do this in a very systematic way because if you've heard me talk about routines, then you know that having a routine means you're not going to forget to do things most likely. So I try to follow a routine. So I'm going to look up the patient's history I'm going to see what their current issue is. Why are they having this procedure? What's been going on with them? Are they allergic to anything? That's also very key to know. I like to look and see what home medications they take and any meds that were given by the anesthesiologist. I will also peek into the anesthesia records, see their vital sign trends while they were in the procedure. It gives me kind of an idea of how stable or unstable they might have been during surgery because that instability could transfer over to me when I'm taking care of them. I kind of want to know what I'm in for. If the surgeon has finished their operative note, and sometimes they do it really quickly, I'll read that and see exactly what was done because sometimes the procedure that was planned, maybe there's a little bit of a difference once they get in there. So I just want to verify what was actually done. And then I release my orders. So hopefully by this point, the anesthesiologist has written their orders. And I look to see if the surgeon has written their orders yet too, because I need two sets of orders. Anesthesia orders are going to be the basic orders, the key orders I use in the recovery room. And then once the patient leaves the recovery room, they're going to be using the surgeon's orders up on the floor. But if the patient's going home, I need the surgeon to write the discharge order for the patient. So I'm looking for orders from both physicians. And then I also get my flow sheet set up. So we have a recovery room flow sheet, but then you can kind of customize it for each patient. So what I do is I go through, I uncheck everything. I click the one box that says uncheck all. And then I go through and I choose the things that are going to be relevant to this patient. And it will vary a bit based on the kind of procedure that they had and their history. So I get my flow sheet set up for that patient and I make a little to-do list. I love a to-do list. So I write a little to-do list on that little slip of white paper that I got. I'm going to make sure that I get a monitor strip or an EKG strip and, you know, write the rhythm and file that. If I don't have orders yet, I write a note that I'm going to go back and check for those. IV fluids, I'll write that down even if the patient doesn't have fluids ordered. It just reminds me to go and look for that order. And then if they don't have fluids ordered, I just cross it off. I also want to make sure I do their care plan and their education, those components that we have to do in the recovery room. 
I write a little checkbox for the note that I'm going to write after I discharge the patient so I don't forget to do that. And then any specifics about that patient or their orders, like if I'm doing vascular checks or if I'm doing neuro checks or if I'm setting up an epidural pump or any of those things or a PCA, I write those on my to-do list. And then I get things ready if I can get them ready. If I have the orders, if pharmacy has supplied things, I can get things set up like I can get IV fluids set up. I can get those bags spiked, the tubing primed. I can get the pump programmed ready to go. I can get our uh, peripheral nerve block pumps together. I can get the epidural pump together if they have that. I can get a PCA together if they have that. Any of those things that I can do ahead of time are going to be very, very helpful. So hopefully I've had a chance to get familiar with the patient, do those kind of basic things ahead of time before the patient gets there. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I get the white slip and the patient's rolling in at about the same time. So not always the case. Usually I get a little bit of a heads up, but then the patient will get there. They're brought to the recovery room by the anesthesiologist and a nurse. So I'll first get report from the anesthesiologist who's basically saying they were stable, they were unstable, here's their history, here's, you know, they were hypotensive or whatever kind of things they dealt with during procedure. They'll tell me, in general, what kind of anesthetic they got, how much, you know, pain medication they got if they gave like 200 of fentanyl or three or four Dilaudid or whatever it is. I already know this because I looked it up, but that's fine. I want to get report from, from the anesthesiologist as well. And this generally occurs as we're hooking the patient up to our monitor. I will then push the start on the blood pressure so that I can get a full set of vital signs before the anesthesiologist leaves the bedside because I want them to know how stable the patient is when they drop them off. Sometimes the anesthesiologist will be in a big old hurry to get out of there. And usually when that happens, that's when the first systolic pressure reading comes back in the 70s. And then I have to call them and we have to do all these things. So what I like to do is get that blood pressure started because it does take, you know, a little bit. And just if they start to leave, I'll just kind of gently remind them, hey, let's just wait and make sure you're happy with his blood pressure before you go. And, you know, of course, if I call them out on it, they know they're supposed to stay. They'll stay. Nurse Mo here. Did you know I have a book on Amazon? It's called Nursing School Thrive Guide, and it's a quick read with tons of great advice and tips for thriving in nursing school. You can simply search for Nursing School Thrive Guide on Amazon or use the link I've provided in the episode notes. If you're starting nursing school soon and feeling a bit overwhelmed, I got you. And the best part is it's available as a paperback, Kindle version, and an audiobook. Want to thrive in nursing school? Then check out Nursing School Thrive Guide, available on Amazon. Okay, so the patient has gotten there. We've hooked them up to the monitor. I've gotten a report from the anesthesiologist. Now I'm going to get a report from the nurse. So the nurse is going to tell me what procedure was done, what kind of incisions, dressings we have, if there's a Foley catheter, if there's a drain, those kinds of things. And we will look at all of this stuff together because you always want to do that baseline assessment with the nurse that's giving you report. Because what if you had a patient come out of surgery 
And they said, oh, they have a drain and they have a dressing here and blah, blah, blah. And you didn't look at it together. And then an hour later, let's say you, for some reason, you didn't get a chance to look at it and it's been an hour and the dressing is completely saturated or the drain doesn't look like it's actually in place. Okay. You would have caught those things with the nurse when they first came out. So you always want to do that assessment together. And then they're going to tell me if the patient got any like local anesthetic, anything like that. So I get a general report from the nurse. And then if the patient has a compromised airway, so this will look like two different things. So if it's compromised and protected, they're going to have an OPA in place, sometimes an NPA, uh, a nasal pharyngeal airway, usually an oral pharyngeal airway. And if the patient has compromised airway for any, you know, any type, any reason, they become a one-to-one, meaning I have only this patient. I do not leave the bedside. I don't take eyeballs off this person until their airway is safe. Okay, does that make sense? So the patient may have uh, that OPA in place or (laughs) you come out and you see the anesthesiologist has got them in a chin lift to keep their airway open as they bring them over. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to be doing that instead of charting, which is fine. You know, obviously patient safety is first. So you may be doing a manual hold on your patient's airway. And we do this a lot in the recovery room. So it's either a chin lift or it's a jaw thrust, and you can try both ways and see which one the patient responds to better. And you will get a lot of practice with this if you work in any kind of environment where patients are, you know, still kind of still kind of under anesthesia or very deeply sedated. So if you are holding airway, typically in my unit, somebody who is free, like the resource nurse, may come and hold airway for you. And then you can chart, which is really nice. Otherwise, you just have to you just have to wait until the airway is protected and you can let go and go into your thing. Now, if you're really holding a lot, you might want to grab an OPA and insert that. And then that frees up your hands, you know, as long as that OPA works to maintain patency. And then you can do your charting and, you know, set up your IVs and all of that, but you can't leave the bedside. You have to still stay and eyeballs on the patient until the OPA is. So once I know that the airway is secure, maybe they've got an OPA in place, or if I don't have to hold that chin lift any longer, then I can do my initial assessment of the patient. And this is going to be An assessment based on, you know, the procedure that they had and looking for any kind of hemodynamic instability. So different types of procedures are going to require different types of assessments. So, for example, a patient that has come from a heart catheterization procedure that has those groin punctures is going to have a lot of assessments around their pedal pulses, right, around that groin site, making sure that it's secure and not bleeding in any way. A neurosurgery patient is going to have neuroassessments done. A thoracotomy patient that comes out with a chest tube is going to have a lot of assessments around their respiratory status and that chest tube. So it really depends on the patient. I'm also looking at things like blood pressure, heart rate, how are they breathing, how, how's that airway doing, by the way, all of those things that tell me 
how the patient is recovering from their anesthesia. And then we're basically managing complications as they come up and anything could happen. Probably the most common is respiratory or airway compromise. Like I said, we do lots of airway stuff in the recovery room. And then hemodynamics would be another very common situation. So respiratory-wise, it's that occluded airway. A lot of times, you know, the patient's just still really, really sedated and their airway's a little floppy. I don't know where that term came from, but it's just like that that airway is just kind of um, not maintaining an open position because of the sedating medication that's on board. So we do that jaw thrust, we do that chin lift, we get that airway open. If they're hypoventilating because they just, maybe they got so much dilaudid in their procedure, maybe they need some assisted ventilation with the BVM, or maybe they need me to rouse them and see if they'll wake up a little bit. Maybe they need an increase in their oxygen with that as well. If they're hypotensive, which is pretty common, do they need something to treat that hypotension? Do they need fluids to treat that hypotension? Are they hypotensive because they're also very bradycardic? Well, if we increase the heart rate, that hypotension could improve. So you have to kind of be a little bit of a detective to figure out the appropriate treatment for what is going on with the patient. And then if they're hypertensive, that can happen as well. We don't want patients to be hypertensive because we've just cut them open and sewed things back together and we don't want any excess bleeding at any of those suture sites. So Will we, will we be giving medications for that? So we're managing complications as they come up. And of course, one of the big complications or, well, I wouldn't call it a complication unless it's really difficult to manage. But an issue that comes up, of course, is pain. We are monitoring and managing pain and we're monitoring for bleeding. So pain management is its whole specialty, I feel like, in and of itself. So you have to understand all the different pain medications that you are giving, and there's different modalities. It's not always opioids. It's a lot of times opioids, but there are other things as well. One of the key things, especially about the opioids that you have to know very well, is when they're going to peak. Because you wouldn't want to give a patient a medication that's going to peak in 30 minutes and cause mass you know, the max amount of sedation at that time and not be observing the patient at that time. So you have to understand how the medications work, when they'll peak and all of that. And then again, the different pain medication modalities, not always opioids. So some other pain medications that are used in that post-anesthesia period are IV Tylenol or Ofermev, a fantastic medication that works really great as like an opioid adjunct. It really, really helps. There's Toradol, there's local anesthetics, there's muscle relaxants, there's the patient having their PCA so that they can control their pain medication, there's epidurals, there's peripheral nerve blocks, there's all these different things. There's ice, there's positioning. So there's a lot of different things that you can do and you get really good at pain management in the recovery room. We're also monitoring for any kind of bleeding, both external and Internal, though, of course, internal bleeding is going to be very hard to see, but external bleeding, you're going to see that, you know, most likely at that suture site. So you're monitoring those dressings. 
internal bleeding. That could be a hematoma. That could be increased pain because the the blood is causing pressure on internal organs, internal nerves, internal things. The patient would then be hypotensive, most likely, along with a tachycardia in most cases. So if you saw a patient who was at high risk for bleeding, their blood pressure is dropping, their heart rate's going up, you might be very suspicious that they are bleeding. And if they have decreased level of consciousness with that, I'd be very, very, very concerned. We're also managing post-op nausea and vomiting a lot in our patients. We're giving medications for that. The common ones are ondansetron, metoclopramide, things like that. There's also some other things that you can do. Increasing fluids is part of, you know, the post-op nausea vomiting protocol. Oxygen can help. Um, even just a fan blowing on the patient can sometimes just make them feel less nauseous. We have essential oils that we use. I don't know how much they help, but um, they smell really good. Um, a trick, a nurse trick, and I don't know. I should look and see if there's any studies on this. But you take an alcohol swab and you place it under the patient's nose and have them smell the alcohol swab, and it does something in the brain to help relieve nausea. So that's a little tip for you there. And then just in general in the recovery room, what you're doing and what I'm doing when I'm there is I'm solving a lot of acute problems in a very short amount of time. So it can be very busy and intense for that short amount of time, but then the patient is going to go, right? They're going to go to a room in the hospital or they're going to go home. It's not like when you're working on the floor or in the ICU where you have your patient for a full 12 hours. Now, does that ever happen? Sure. It happens when there's not any beds available and patients do stay in the recovery room for a long time, but it's not the general standard of how we do things. So patients will either go home or they will go up to a room. So if the patient's going home, I make sure that they first of all meet criteria to go home. I want to make sure that they're safe. And then I call the unit, the go home unit. So I call, there's like another phase of recovery. So they'll go to that phase, which is a lower acuity phase. And the nurses over there are the ones that are going to help the patient up and make sure that they can go urinate. They're going to help the patient get dressed. They're going to go over the discharge instructions, all of those things. So I'll call over to that unit, and then one of those nurses will come pick up the patient. I'll give them report, and then that patient goes, and we wave goodbye, okay? Now, if the patient is going up to their room, then they also have to meet specific criteria. If they're going to the ICU, they're getting the same level of care that they're getting in the recovery room, so they don't have to meet the same criteria as if they're going, like, say, to tele or ortho or med surge. So you always want to keep that in mind. And when the patient is ready and they meet that criteria, I give a courtesy call to the nurse who's going to be taking them because maybe they're swamped. Maybe they're at lunch, even though technically someone should be covering them. Maybe they just need 10 minutes. So I give that courtesy call and then I go up with one of our techs and deliver the patient, give bedside report to the nurse. We look at the dressings. If it's a neuro patient, we do a neuro check. And I make sure that they don't have any questions. I thank the patient, wish them well, and I'm back down to the recovery room. 
At this point, I get a little bit of a break unless I have a second patient, which sometimes I will. A lot of times I will not, though, and I'll have no patients for a minute. And I have to say that's probably one of my favorite parts about the recovery room because working in the ICU, you're on, right? You go in for your 12 hours and you're on for that whole time, except for maybe, you know, your 30-minute lunch and your little breaks. But Even then, you're still thinking about your patient because you're still trying to solve all of their problems. Well, I don't have a patient anymore. So I, you have these really intense, short periods of time with patients, but it then drops back down, right? So it goes, it's like a roller coaster, right? It's intense and then you get to chill out and then it's intense and then you get to chill out. And I like that because it, I like those little emotional, mental stress breaks. So I'll take a moment. I'll go around again. I'll do a lap. I'll see if anybody needs a hand. Um, Maybe I'll go reheat my coffee if I get a chance. And then, you know, I'll get another patient at some point. Now, again, according to how you know, sick the patient is, or if they've got an airway or what kind of surgery they have, they may be a one-to-one, but otherwise you could get a second patient. So you always have to be aware of that. But usually where I work for the most of the time, you have one patient. And if you do have two, it's usually because you've had one patient for a while. They're pretty stable. You might just be waiting on orders from the physician or something like that where the patient's not, you know, you're not in problem solving mode with them anymore. And now you can go into problem solving mode with your new patient. So this just continues until there are no more surgeries for the day. And again, the daytime regular staff goes home at 11. If there are still patients, if there's someone in surgery that's going to be coming out after that time, that's when the on-call team comes in. So that's just a little overview of what my day is like in the recovery room. I really like it. I think it's fun. I like having those focused, intense sessions, I guess you would call it, with patients. And then I like that I get to switch and do something different. I never know what the next surgery is going to be, and I always learn something new. So different recovery rooms obviously are going to be set up differently. The way ours works is it's adults and pediatrics. And again, it kind of it doesn't shut down at 11, but you know what I mean. It's on call after 11. It's on call weekends, and it's on call for the holidays. But other PACUs, again, might be open 24-7, just like any other part of the hospital. Some recovery rooms are very patient-specific. Some may be adults only. Some may be pediatrics only. And then some are for outpatient procedures only. So there's a lot of variety that you can encounter working in the recovery room. So I know by now you're like, wow, that sounds like a pretty cool place to work, right? So how do you know if this type of nursing is for you? So first of all, if airway issues make you crazy nervous, then you might not feel comfortable there. But my guess is you would get a lot more comfortable as you got more exposure to them. So don't let that preclude you from exploring it, okay? I promise with anything, the more you see it, the more you do it, the more competent you feel and the more confidence you have in your skills. You have to be very comfortable with high acuity patients for typically what are considered short amounts of time. 
you can't solve all their problems, but you're going to have to be able to identify their most pressing problems and address those. So this would require a really good ability to prioritize. And it's also great if you like variety. Like I said, you never know what the next surgery is going to bring. You never know what the day is going to bring. And in the facility where I work, we see all kinds of surgeries. I could have a heart procedure, a heart cath procedure in the morning or a pacemaker placement in the morning, followed by a neurosurgery, followed by a GI surgery, followed by a gynecologic surgery, followed by a dental surgery. It could be all kinds of things. And you also have to like having high patient turnover. If you're the person who wants to develop relationships and follow a patient through their whole, you know, course of care, then you're probably going to like working on the floor or in the ICU better. But if you like that high patient turnover, the recovery room may be right up your alley. And then as far as the type of experience that is necessary for working in the recovery room, most are going to want you to have ICU experience or ER experience because the patients, again, are very high acuity as they are still under the effects of anesthesia. They can be very hemodynamically unstable, so you have to be comfortable understanding how to respond to those situations. So I hope this little glimpse into my day helps you see what my life is like, what PACU nursing is like, and why I have enjoyed it so much. I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to spend with me. It means the absolute world to me. And I hope you join me again next week for more. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.